Well, let's open up our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 11. We are nearing the conclusion of chapter 11, what really makes the the first section of the book, which is often called the theological section of the book of Romans. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. That has us in verse 25. And so here now together, the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this pure and good and perfect gift that you have given to us, every word of it breathed out by you for our good. Pray, Lord, by your spirit, through your word this morning, you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been, have been laboring for a while now in, in Romans chapters 9 through 11, um, widely considered one of the most difficult sections uh, in all of Scripture to interpret and understand. But as we come now to this passage near the end of Romans chapter 11, really all of, of chapters 9 through 11 are summarized here for us in this passage. These, these chapters we have been studying give us a glimpse into God's redemptive work in the world. His, his redemptive plan as it goes forward, particularly as it concerns his work in and through the church. And these chapters, as we have read them and studied them, cause us to stand amazed at the sovereignty of God, to stand in awe of his might and his working, his rule and control over all things, including the hearts of men. And it also really shows us how to navigate the realities of, of what we'd call the, the temporal kingdom, that those things we can see with our eyes in this world right now. Things, things, God's control over these things, the way that God raises up nations and the way that God brings them down, his sovereignty over all the events that happen in history, past, present, future events. This is very encouraging for us to remind ourselves in when we look around at a world that looks like it's spiraling out of control to remember that God remains in control. But, but this temporal kingdom that we see with our eyes is it's really those things that are passing away. It's really those things that are giving way to, to the eternal kingdom. And the eternal kingdom is the point of everything. This eternal, invisible to us kingdom of God is the point 
of all things. And if we get too carried away with the temporal kingdom, with this temporary kingdom, we'll get distracted from the work of the eternal kingdom that God is bringing about here on the earth, the culmination of which is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, from which we will live for all of eternity. And so we want to keep that in mind as we study this passage and as we consider these chapters we've been looking at. There's a popular teaching, really popular in the last 30 years. I think it's decreasing in its prominence a little bit from what it was when I was a younger guy. And the teaching is basically this, the nations, and in particular the United States, that's what we really focus on, if we don't support the current nation state of Israel, it will result in the curse of God upon our nation. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you've repeated that, maybe you've believed that, it is a common, common teaching. If you bless Israel, you'll be blessed if you curse the nation of Israel, you'll be cursed. Of course, this is relating back to the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 12. And the, the application of this as we, as, we, as we teach it and promote it and share it is if we don't support the current geopolitical nation state of Israel, we will be cursed by God. But if we do support them, we will receive God's blessing. Let me just tell you what this, what this teaching serves to do for us is to take our focus off of God's eternal kingdom and to put it on a temporal one. This kingdom that God is bringing about here on the earth and it focuses us instead on the temporary, on the fading. In fact, it has served as it has grown in prominence over the last 30 so years in the United States to distract the evangelical world from the gospel. It has become a massive distraction to us. It has pulled people away from the purity of the gospel and they start thinking that, that salvation or the blessings of God are incurred through some sort of covenant of works with God. It's by the things we do and the things we don't do and who we give our political approval to. We have regressed in the United States in our in our popular understanding of doctrine, terribly. We have regressed terribly in the essential truth of the gospel that God saves and God blesses by grace alone. There are not things that we do that make us deserving of God's blessing. We don't deserve it. His blessing is an act of undeserved mercy. There's no way we could have studied this far into Romans and come to any other conclusion than that. We who are undeserving are relying wholly on the grace of God. And any blessing we receive from him is kindness on his part. It is mercy on his part. It's, it's his working in us. Well, if we will understand Romans chapters 9 through 11 correctly, in the way that it has been understood by the majority of the church for almost 2,000 years, we'll be able to avoid the pitfall of focusing on the wrong things, being distracted by the wrong things, missing the point entirely, or worse yet, potentially distorting the gospel itself. I'm not saying that everyone who believes what I said earlier about blessings and cursings related to Israel, uh, the current nation state of Israel, that, that all of them have distorted the gospel, but there's a real danger there. When we think that blessing comes because of what we do, the curse from God comes because of what we don't do. 
Can you see how antithetical that is to the gospel as Paul has presented it thus far in the book of Romans? That it's all hinging on us. The reality is blessings come to us by the grace of God. He gives us faith. We enter into this eternal kingdom of which Abraham is the father of all who have faith. And this is the way God has designed things to work. It is the way he's revealed that things work. God does his redemptive work through the church. He does not do his redemptive work through geopolitical nation states. It's essential that we understand that. It's essential that we remember that. The church is eternal. Nation states are temporal. They're temporary. They're not going to last forever. And getting this right will help us keep our priorities straight. We're called to make disciples of all the nations, not to obsess about what's going on with Israel right now in its current state over there. Not, not to obsess over, over wild end time scenarios. And, and I only start with this because it's very related to this passage. This passage is used and abused towards those ends. And frankly, the things that are going on in our world right now have us going into all kinds of wild speculation about end time scenarios. It's essential that we, that we keep the main thing of the gospel in focus or else we will go into wild tangents and we won't know that they're wild tangents. Paul calls this, what we're talking about in our text today, a mystery. It's a mystery. And because the mystery that Paul reveals is that God is keeping his promises through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will cause us, if we understand that, to press forward, to press forward in humble yet joyful participation in the Great Commission. That's our call as a church. Our call is not wild speculation. Our, our call is not um, demands of, of geopolitical allegiance. It's the Great Commission. And so we, we dare not get distracted. And the other thing it will cause us to do is to never, ever, ever, ever consider rebuilding the dividing wall of separation that Christ has torn down between Jews and Gentiles. That's part of what this teaching has done that has come to prominence in our nation in the last 30 years is to, to this wall that Christ has torn down between Jew and Gentile, it's to build it right back up and go, here's the Gentiles, here's the Jews, we don't intermingle these two things. God works in one way with them and he works in one way with the Gentiles. That, that, that is, is working in the complete opposite direction of what Paul's revealing here to be the mystery of the gospel. So if we keep this context in mind as we study this passage, it's going to help us avoid some very, very common errors of our day. Let's look now at what Paul says here. What, what is this mystery? Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. The, the first thing we want to note here is Paul's motivation. He wants to remove our ignorance, uh, our, our arrogance. He, he says, I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. Because in our arrogance, when we are wise in our own sight, we might miss the point. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. This, this Greek word mystery, it's not exactly the same as our English word mystery. When, when we think of a mystery, we think of like 
you know, Sherlock Holmes is going to solve this thing. There's, there's something that needs to be solved. There's something that's unknown. But, but here the word actually means it's, it's something that wasn't known before, but it has now been revealed. This thing we didn't know before, but we know it now and we ought to proclaim it. It's, it's not a hidden secret for us to figure out. It is an answer that's been revealed. That's what Paul's doing. I'm revealing an answer to you. I'm revealing something to you. C.E.B. Cranfield in his commentary says, the word mystery denotes characteristically in the New Testament, not something which must not be disclosed to the uninitiated. That's a very confusing commentary way of saying, this is not hidden knowledge just for the select few. This is revealed truth. This is the fulfillment of something. He goes on, he says, it's something that could not be known by men except by divine revelation but which, though once hidden, is now revealed in Christ and is to be proclaimed so that all who have ears to hear may hear it. So, so this is a, a truth that has now been revealed to us by Christ, and it's meant for the world. It's meant for everyone. Paul has spent three chapters unfolding this mystery for us so that you and I would not be uninformed. And the mystery relates to God's present activity in saving a Jewish remnant, the Jewish elect, and in saving the Gentile elect and to bringing all of them into one body together, into one body in Christ, one people, one nation, one cultivated olive tree, one Israel of God. These are all the language that, 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 that Paul uses to describe what God's doing. It's bringing the Jewish elect together, the Gentile elect together, making one Thing out of them. That's the mystery. That's the mystery that Paul says, this has now been revealed to you. This is the mystery you must, not, you must not miss. It's the mystery you must understand. It's the mystery that must be proclaimed. And so as Paul's been unfolding this mystery for us, he told us in, all the way back in chapter 9, verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is helpful for us, if we'll understand what Paul says all the way back in, in chapter 9, to understand that, that Paul's going to use the word Israel in a way that's not automatically what we would assume he means by it. We would hear Israel and we think all the ethnic Jews. That's who Paul's talking about. But Paul says, no, no, no. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's cluing us in that as he goes in these three chapters, he's going to use that word Israel, and it's not necessarily going to mean that I'm just talking about ethnic Jews here, all the ethnic Jews. And so Paul says, though, that the word of God hasn't failed. That's what he's been teaching us in these chapters, because the majority of Jews in the day of Jesus, in the day of Paul, and in our day have been in rebellion, rebellion against God, rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has said that doesn't mean that God's promises to Israel have, have failed. In other words, what he's been telling us is how it is that God is keeping his promises to Israel. And he tells us, lest you be wise in your own sight. I'm explaining to you how God's keeping his promises, lest you be arrogant. Lest you be puffed up and vain. Lest you, you just wander off into speculation Lest you consume yourself with knowledge that God has not given us, I'm telling you what's going on so that you won't miss the point. 
Unfortunately, modern evangelicalism has taken the very scripture that Paul tells us this in and has done the complete opposite. We've sensationalized it. We've brought in all kinds of grand end times imagining that someone just invented and then we stick it on top of this passage as if this is what it's talking about. But here in verses 25 and 26, Paul gives us three points that summarize chapters 9 through 11 and to tell us what the mystery is all about. First, in verse 25, he says, a partial hardening has come on Israel. It's partial. A partial hardening. Now, this doesn't mean that the individual Jews 50% hardened and 50% not. And it doesn't mean that 50% of the population is hardened or that they're hardened 50% of the time. Paul's pointing to the same truth he's been talking about since chapter 9, that from among the people of Israel, the national people, the ethnic people of Israel, there is an elect chosen people who God will save. Paul told us a people chosen by grace. And Paul's been vindicating God's faithfulness to his promises by showing that God never intended to save all the Jews. That's been Paul's first vindication of God. God never intended to save all the Jews. So he says, not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. That, is, that statement from chapter 9, verse 6 is, is so important for us to make sense of chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so the reprobate are hardened to never believe. The elect are provoked to faith by Gentile belief. Part of Israel will be hardened and judged, and part will receive mercy and be saved. And it's in this remnant, in this remnant chosen by grace, this remnant who receives mercy and salvation from God, that God's promises are kept. In the remnant, the nation is saved. In the salvation of this elect remnant chosen by grace, all the promises of God to Israel are fulfilled as they are grafted into the one olive tree that constitutes the, the, the Israel of God, the true Israel of God. That's Paul's first point. It's a partial hardening. Second, he says, until the fullness of Gentile, the Gentiles has come in. So this partial hardening has an end date to it. Once the full number of God's chosen people have been grafted into this one olive tree, all that's left after that are hardened people. That's all that remains. After, after God has grafted in all of his people into this one olive tree, it is just fully hardened people for whom time has run out. There's one olive tree. There's one people of God. All the Old Testament promises of God about Israel inheriting salvation are now being fulfilled in this olive tree, in this olive tree of, of believing Jews and Gentiles, this one people of God, this one body. And that's always been God's plan. That's part of what Paul's been telling us in these chapters. This was not plan B when Israel just proved themselves to be rebellious and God never saw it coming. This has always been the plan of God. One tree, one people, one body. This is why it's a mystery. Because throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, we didn't know that. Throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, we, we had come to believe, and certainly the Jews had come to believe, we are the one and only people of God. And Paul says, no, the mystery you didn't know before, but that God has now revealed is the plan has always been to create of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, one people, one tree, one nation. 
Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers in the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. It's the same teaching, that there is no longer a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. One day, all of the elect Jews, all of the elect Gentiles will be brought together in the one olive tree. So God saves the remnant. The rest are hardened. Paul told us that earlier in chapter 11 in verse 7. What then, he says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Just reemphasizing what he already said. The elect receive this mercy, the rest are hardened. And so we have a group of hardened people who will not obtain it, and we have a group of chosen people who will obtain it. That's the second thing he says in these verses. Third, then, he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Notice what he doesn't say in verse 26, though. He doesn't say, and then all Israel will be saved. There's a big distinction between that, saying in this way and saying, and then. Palmer Robertson says this in his commentary, first of all, common misconceptions of this verse must be removed. The passage is often read as though it were saying, and then all Israel will be saved. However, the phrase kai hutas in the Greek simply does not mean and then. Instead, it means in this manner or in this way. Of the approximately 205 times that the word hutas occurs in the New Testament, not once does it have temporal or time significance. In other words, we cannot translate this. We cannot read this to to mean, and then all the Jews are going to be saved. God's going to do this thing, and then after that, all the Jews will be saved, because that's not what it means. It's not what those words mean. And so he's saying this is the way all Israel be. What I'm explaining to you is not, not my future prophecy about these things are going to happen, and then all the Jews are going to be saved. No, he's saying this is how all the Jews are going to be saved. He's not saying one day all the Jews will be saved. He's looking at the salvation of all of the elect of God. They're being grafted together into the one olive tree, and he's saying that's the way all Israel will be saved. It's by people from every tribe and tongue and nation being grafted into the one tree. That's how all Israel will be saved. And so verse 26 is not adding any new information onto verse 25, it is drawing a conclusion from verse 25. God God is working to save his elect people through this process, Paul says. The Jews rejected the gospel. That caused the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles who received the gospel. And God saves the Gentiles then through the Jewish unbelief. And then he says, now the Jews will be saved through the Gentile belief. As, they are, as the Gentiles now take the gospel back to the Jews, as the Jews now observe the Gentiles receiving the blessings of the new covenant from God, the Jews will be provoked to jealousy and some will believe. That's Paul's narrow focus here, not end times prophecy. That would be totally out of place with everything he's said before. So... so What am I saying? Am I saying there won't be a future mass conversion of the Jews? I'm not saying that. There might be. I think there probably will be. 
But that's not what this passage teaches us. That's not what Paul's saying here. In fact, what Paul is teaching is God's going to save a remnant. That's been the whole teaching. God's going to save a a remnant, and that remnant will be brought together with all of God's elect people, grafted together as one people into one olive tree. And so all Israel here doesn't mean every single Jew. Almost no one believes that it means every single Jew, that every single Jew will be saved. It's, it's all the elect Jews from every age, not just one future generation. It's all who have been grafted into this olive tree. This olive tree contains the full number of the Jewish elect. It contains the full number of the Gentile elect. Paul uses that language. He says the fullness of the Gentiles, and he says all the Jews. Sort of parallel statements here. It's all the Gentile elect. None are missing. It's all the Jewish elect. None are missing. It's a picture of completion. Not one of God's people will be left out of being grafted into this tree. That's the mystery. Jews and Gentiles being made into one people of God. No longer a dividing wall of hostility. It's the mystery Paul reveals in Romans. It's the mystery he reveals in Ephesians. It's the same point he makes both times. That's the mystery. This mystery is promised, he shows us, in the Old Testament. It's not a new plan. It's not God's second choice. He says in verse 26, as he goes on, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul reminds us of the promises God made his people. He brings together several Old Testament passages to show this, and in a chronological way, he takes three Old Testament texts to, to bring this truth to light. First, he says, the, the deliverer will come from Zion. That's Isaiah 59, 20. It's a reference to Jesus' first coming in, in Isaiah. It's a reference to the incarnation, Christ coming in the flesh. The, the deliverer will come from Zion. Then he tells us what the deliverer is going to do when he came. Quoting Isaiah chapter 27, verse 9, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. When when this deliverer comes, the sin debt of God's people will be removed. It will be atoned for. The deliverer will banish it. John the Baptist said this about Jesus in Luke chapter 3. His winnowing fork is in his hand. To clear his threshing floor, he will gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Third, then, Paul quotes Jeremiah 31, verse 33, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is God's promise of a new covenant with his people. Jesus said his blood inaugurated that new covenant. Hebrews 7 calls this a better covenant. So Paul is is pointing to what, this is what's going on in that one olive tree. It's the new covenant. It is people from every tribe and nation and language being brought together as the one people of God. And Paul's point here is is clear. God will surely save his elect. He will do it. He will cleanse their sins. He will make them righteous. He will bring them into a new covenant with him. He will bring them into the one olive tree. He will bring them into the one body. He will make of them a new nation. And then Paul, as he goes on in verse 28, summarizes this mystery for us, really summarizing all that he has said before, verse 28, as regards the gospel, 
They are enemies for your sake. That's the Jews. They are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient. In order that the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. It's really the summary of chapters 9 through 11, this mystery that Paul is unfolding for us. The Jews are the enemies of the gospel, but that's not the end of their story. The Jews in the time of Paul and the Jews even in our day to a large extent, enemies of the gospel, and that is not all that there is to be said about that because there remains an elect remnant according to God's gracious choice, and God will save all of his people. Those whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, God will save them because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. And that's what that statement means, by the way. Growing up charismatic, I heard that statement being applied in charismatic and Pentecostal circles to to preachers and gifted people who sinned and morally fell and then were quickly reinstated. And the, the, the saying was, well, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, so let's get this guy back in the pulpit. That's not what that verse means at all. Paul is telling us not a one of God's people chosen by grace will be left out. Not a one will be left behind. God will will graft them into this tree. All who are called by God will come to faith. And God has called out from among the Jews true Israelites who are our elect and called and will exercise saving faith. That's what Paul's telling us here. Among this, this temporal nation we can see with our eyes, Israel, within that is tr- a true Israel who God will call out by faith. But, but not all who are in this temporal nation fit into that category. There's a chosen people. Paul reminds us this is why we must never be arrogant. This is why we must never be arrogant. He says to us, remember your own past. Remember who you were. Remember how you were saved. He says, just as you were at one time disobedient. In other words, in this context, he's looking at the Gentiles who are looking at the Jews, and he says, let's not forget that you're not better than them. Let's not forget that you're just as bad as them. You are not better. You are not superior to the Jews. You yourself were in their exact position at one time. And friends, this doesn't just apply to Jew and Gentile. We must not look upon the unbeliever on the sinner with contempt and pride. God forbid. We we were once those very people rebelling against God, who hated Christ, who despised Christ, the gospel. And, and we may look at our own lives and go, I don't think I ever did. I don't think I ever hated Christ. I don't think I ever despised the gospel. I don't think I ever shook my fist in God's face. If Paul is not a liar in the first three chapters of this book, then friend, you did. That's exactly what you did. Dead in sin. Enslaved to sin. Hating God. His enemy. And yet God saved us. Not not because of anything we did. 
It was a pure act of God's sovereign mercy and grace towards us. We are who we are now only by the grace of God. Look at the worst person you can imagine. The filthiest, most vile sinner. We all have these categories of sin in our mind that we think are worse than everything else. Look at them and understand that the only reason you're not them is the grace of God. It is nothing about you. It is nothing about you that made, that made God want to pick you because you were so great. It is his mercy. It is his grace. It is his continued kindness. Paul says, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. No one is superior to anyone else. No one is more righteous than anyone else. And when he says that he may have mercy on all, it doesn't mean that that, that this universal truth about all, all mankind being consigned to wickedness, being consigned to disobedience. Consigned means imprisoned, bound up. It's the state of everyone before God intervenes. Remember Romans chapters 1 through 3, as Paul took us to the edge of that pit of filth and, and just looked over into it with us and said, this is who you were. This is who everyone is. When Paul says that, that all are consigned to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, it doesn't mean that every single person will ultimately receive the mercy of God. It means that no one comes into this family, no one comes into this body, no one comes into this tree except by the mercy of God. There's no other way in. You can't be born into it. It's mercy. The law condemned you. The law condemned me. The law rightly condemns everyone. As Paul told us in chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's the state of everybody. Consigned, bound over, imprisoned to disobedience. So if you have been saved, if you have been rescued from that, it is not because of you. It all rests on the mercy of God, 100% of it. You don't get to share one half of 1% of the credit for this. This is the culmination of 11 chapters of glorious theology. Some of this theology has left us feeling like we are bobbing in the middle of the ocean hopelessly far from land, unable to touch the ground, just a, a float in a sea of God's sovereign majesty and his bigness. It's the kind of theology that a lot of churches don't want to talk about. They call it ivory tower theology. They say it's not of practical use. I say that message is from hell and an abomination. But after 11 chapters of this, Paul isn't, he, he's not left scratching his temple, sitting at his luxurious desk where everything's covered in mahogany and he's now such a scholar. That's not what this leads to. It doesn't lead to Paul looking down his nose at everyone else. The culmination of 11 chapters of glorious mountaintop theology is that if we understand it, it crushes our pride and it causes us to glory in God's mercy. That's what doctrine does. That's what right theology does. There's nothing more practical. 
It crushes our pride. It's by grace you've been saved, through faith. This is the gift of God, not the result of works. That's the conclusion we come to. The gospel, when rightly understood, humbles us. It magnifies the holiness of God. It magnifies the the grace of God. It magnifies the glory and the power and the majesty of God. That's why, after 11 chapters of mountain peak theological truth, Paul's final words in chapter 11 that we'll get to next week are words of worshipful adoration. This explosion of worship, the the things that Christians all like to fight about are are the thing that produced in Paul's heart just an ecstatic expression of worship. Standing in awe of the sovereign God of the universe who has condescended to save undeserving sinners. What do we say in the light of that? What, what, what do we say in the light of a holy God? Showing mercy to sinners. Acting on our behalf to bring us to himself, to make us his beloved sons and daughters, to graft us into this tree that no one can rip us out of. What do we say to the coming of God the Son in human flesh to live a sinless life and be despised and rejected and cursed by those whose lungs he filled with air. Beaten by those whose muscles he gave strength. To pour out his own lifeblood in our place, bearing our wrath and our condemnation, inaugurating the new covenant between God and man. What is our response to salvation by grace alone? What does it produce in the Christian heart? What what is there to say? Well, it's what Paul says next, that we'll study next week. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That's what these truths produce in the heart of the Christian. Not raised fists, ready to fight one another. Worshipful adoration of the sovereign God of salvation. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, you have revealed these truths to us. And this, this mystery of which you have made us partakers, we cannot, cannot imagine the glory of that. We can't imagine your kindness and your grace that you have shown to us. We, we cannot fathom your power to save. Lord, you are gracious and glorious and we rejoice in you. I pray, Lord, that you would produce in our hearts this kind of worshipful adoration. Lord, even even as these things are too grand for us to fully understand, that, that, Lord, they would produce in our hearts not vain speculation, but humble worship. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us and through us, that we, your ambassadors, your chosen, Lord, would be faithful to keep our hand to the plow here on earth. Lord, because you have, you have your people. 
And you have sent us, Lord, to preach the gospel to all nations, teaching them to obey you, baptizing them. So we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish your great saving purposes, that you would do so through us for your glory, for all of your people's eternal joy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.